Uh, we've been looking uh, leading up to Advent at the Old Testament book of Ruth. And um, remember there was a famine and uh, a family, uh, a husband and wife, Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons, Maglon and Kilion, went, had to flee uh, their home, Bethlehem, to go to Moab because of uh, the famine in a day and age when there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And while they were in Moab for a number of years, uh, the two boys, Machlon and Kilian, married uh, Moabite wives uh, and never had any children. They were barren. And then catastrophe struck again when uh, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and her two sons, Machlon and Kilian, married to Ruth and to Orpah, died. And so last week when we last saw uh, these these three widows, they were on the road heading back to Bethlehem because they had heard in the fields of Moab that God had visited his people and that he had lifted the famine. Uh, Naomi urges her two daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. And uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is she believes that God is against her, and if they go with her, uh, then God might be against them as well. Uh, but I also think, and we, we looked last week at some of the evidence in the text, that she views these two women as burdened uh, because she has a sense of obligation and responsibility that she must provide for them. At the very least, it was her job, her obligation to, have, to provide for them some sort of husband or someone uh, to care for them. So in the midst of that, these women crying on the road, lifting up their voices, one of the Moabite women Orpah decides to go back to her home. And then Ruth and Naomi travel the rest of the way to Bethlehem. Um, and so that's, that's where we left it. So uh, today we're going to pick up uh, with that story uh, in Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. That text is in the bulletin, uh, and it's also uh, up on uh, the screens behind me. Ruth 1, 19 through 22. This is the word of God, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Um, And I just want to say before I read this, uh, I say those words about uh, this is the word of God, and we should hear it and respond to it as such every week. Every week. Every week. I've been doing it for 23 years. And... um, It never fails to unnerve me and thrill me that we have a God who wants to speak to us. And you're here today, and he's speaking. What a great, uh, what, it's just, yeah, it's no wonder I can't sleep on Saturday nights, so, yeah, it's wonderful. So Ruth chapter 1, verse 19 through 22. This is the word of God. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. 
And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So what we're going to do this morning is we're, I'm going to begin by giving you uh, three quotes from my favorite author, Marilyn Robinson. Uh, so to kind of set this scene in context for you. And then what we're going to do is we're going to look at the text itself and answer a couple of questions. And then we're going to look at a theology of complaining. So hang around for that one. <laughs> okay, that, that, that's a good one. Uh, a, a, a theology of complaint, uh, that, that'll be popular. And then we will, uh, we'll draw out some, some points of application at the end. So one of the things, one of the things that we have to see about this text, and one of the things that is so rich to me about just these four verses here, just 19 through 22, is how profoundly God is at work. And, and one of the things that is so rich and profound to me about this is, is that the grace of God runs all the way through this text without God saying, hey, the grace of God runs through this text. We should learn from that. And one of the things that I hope as we look at this this morning is that, that, that God has something in this text for, for uh, many of us. There are people here today who are bitter, cynical, dark souls. And they may be that way because they suffer every day with uh, chronic pain or they suffer every day with chronically broken relationships or they suffer every day with chronic disappointment. It's real. It's legitimate. There are people here today uh, who are discouraged uh, because they think God doesn't see or hear or uh, move towards them. And then there are those among us this morning, the ones that I find the most difficult and the most heartrending and the most terrifying. And those are the ones who are unencourageable, who actually find a weird kind of self-righteousness in their bitterness. And and that bitterness that causes them to stand apart, not just from God, but from the provision that God has given them uh, in his people. So so there's something in this text, I think, uh, I think this morning uh, for, for, for all of us. So these three quotes from Marilyn Robinson to get us started. So um, uh, the first one is um, that one. Um, Weary or bitter or bewildered, as we may be, God is faithful. He lets us wander so we will know what it means to come home. Uh, what, what a great, uh, what a, what a great uh, thing uh, to think about, about um, especially as folks gather this week to go home. Then um, this is a great description of Naomi. And often enough, when we think we are protecting ourselves, which Naomi certainly is as she walks down that road uh, back to Bethlehem and her old friends come out to greet her. Often enough, when we think we are protecting ourselves, we are struggling against our rescuer. And we'll see exactly how Naomi does that in this text. And then the the last one, which is my favorite one. Uh, I experience religious dread... Whenever I find myself thinking, I know the limits of God's grace. Now, 
Now, this is, a, this is a good one because all of us have places or things in our lives that we have been hurt in and we have closed ourselves off from the possibility of God's grace ever reaching or changing those things. Or we think God couldn't forgive that or God couldn't redeem that or God couldn't renew that. And I, I love the way she says this. When I find myself thinking that I know the limits of God's grace, since I'm utterly certain it exceeds any imagination a human being might have of it, God does, after all, so love the world. And that last sentence is not original to her. <laughs> right? God does so love the world. Ever heard that verse before? Ever seen a ball game? Anyway. Uh, John 3.16. So let's dig into the text and, and see what, uh, what we have here. So one of the things that, you, that we note about this, and one of the things that leaps off the page, to me anyway, is that when Naomi's walking down the road with her daughter-in-law Ruth in grief and in darkness, you know, the, the, when you look at artwork that, that portrays this, it, it's almost like these women are faceless and that they're just kind of hooded figures Shrouded figures in the darkness trying to make their way down uh, down a very lonely road. Well, one of the things that you have to see about this right off the bat is Naomi says that she left full, right? She said, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She says she's come back empty. But one of the things that you have to note about that is And one of the great things about the character of God is that God is screaming to her in this text of grace and she can't see it or hear it. And the evidence of that is in the very first sentence, verse 19. So the two of them, the two of them. So is Naomi really empty? There's two of them. She's not by herself. There's two of them. We're going to look at this a little bit more. So, so, so the, the, but, and that, to say that, please understand, to say that is not to minimize her complaint or minimize her grief or minimize her difficulty or minimize the very real stuff that she is struggling with. The very fact of the matter is that what is happening here is that God is providing for her. And so, but, but her grief and her struggle and her pain is so deep, she's unable to see it. And so, so the very thing the text tells us that begins to tell us is the two of them. So though she says she came back empty, the fact of the matter is we know that there's more to it than that. We hear Naomi's complaint. However, ringing in her ears should be Ruth's word of commitment to her. Ruth has just said to her, I will go with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you live, I will live. And where you die, I will die. Right. So so Ruth has made this commitment to her and sworn by the name of the God of Israel that she's going to do this. Right. So so ringing in her ears should be Ruth's word of commitment to her. Has the Lord really brought Naomi back empty? Based on Ruth's words, we already know that Naomi is not alone and will not be ever. And so so one of the things that we have to see about that is. That her grief and her difficulty and her struggle is so deep and so profound. All she sees is herself and her pain. She cannot see anything else. 
That's all she can see. God bless her. God bless her. What a great woman. What a great woman. And, and as we look at this, we're going to learn a lot from her actually in this. But the fact is, God is at work here. God is loving her. God is pursuing her. God is providing for her. But her circumstances and her situation are so bleak. And trust me, it's bleak. It really is bleak. She is unable to see or to sense that God is providing for her. Next slide. The next thing we have to see, and we're going to unpack this a little bit more towards the end, but exactly who is it that's returning? So when you read this text, one of the things that you might see here is that you might think, well, of course, Naomi is returning to Bethlehem. Verse 22, the, 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 and in fact, if, we had, if this were a, a, a seminary Old Testament class, we would have spent the last two weeks studying the word turn and return. That's what I've been thinking about the last three weeks. But, but uh, I know that those, those things don't, probably don't interest most of you and probably shouldn't. Uh, but, um, but look at verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. When you first read that, you might think, well, he's just repeating the fact that Naomi is returning home. But you'd be misreading the text if you read it that way, right? A cursory reading of the text might lead us to believe that of the three women in this story, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, remember Orpah, that two of them are returning. Orpah, she returned to Moab, and Naomi returned to Bethlehem. Ruth is not returning anywhere. She's going someplace she's never been before. But what the text actually says is, that so Naomi returned along with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. She, speaking of, of, of Ruth, that's what the she is, who returned from Moab. That should confuse you. And I'll get, at the end, I'll help you be unconfused. But just sit in the confusion for a minute. After all, after all, you never learn anything if you're not first confused. Because if you already know the answer to everything, you don't need to learn anything, right? So just sit in that for a minute. Is the writer of Ruth a bad grammarian? We'll see. We'll answer that question. Okay, so, so the fact is, uh, what we have to see here is, is that, that, that Naomi sees only her pain, and the writer, the narrator of this story, sees two women returning home while one of them has only ever lived in this place before. Next slide. So at what point are they returning? Well, there's something that's important for you to note in the text, and it says that they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. One of the things you have to see, again, just like it says at the beginning of this text, that there were two of them who were returning to Bethlehem. They are returning at a time of harvest. They, the, 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 just as they had heard that God had lifted the famine, not only has he lifted the famine, but in his providence and in his care and his, in his timing, they are returning at precisely the best time for them to return. Because they are returning at the time where the harvest is coming in, where food will be abundant. And so yet again, though it may seem bleak and it may seem hard and it may seem difficult because it is, 
The fact is, in the midst of this darkness and in the midst of this difficulty, the very time in which these two women are returning is at the time of harvest where God has lifted the famine, he has visited his people, and he is providing for them. The famine's over. And that should indicate to us, if you have any any kind of literary sense about this story at all, what you should begin to see here is, is that God is shining light in a dark situation. He's not minimizing the darkness of the situation. He's not minimizing the bleakness of their situation. But he is, in fact, engaged and involved in redeeming and shining light into this darkness. So, Let's take a minute to look at a theology of complaint because uh, this is this is important and there's something to be learned uh, uh, from Naomi. Now, Naomi, which means sweet or pleasant, responds to the cries of delight. And that's really what it is when when we, we you may read this like. Uh, when they go, is this Naomi? The women said, is this Naomi? The, 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 what the Hebrew indicates there is, it's they're delighted. Look, it's Naomi. She's returned. We've missed you. It's awesome that you're coming back. Don't call me Naomi. I am bitter. Right? She stiff arms them. Right? As... As they come along, because they're delighted to see her. They are, they are overjoyed to see her. Is this Naomi? Look. And she stiff arms them in the midst of that. So one of the, the ladies of Bethlehem come out and they see her. They call her by her name and she's like, I've changed my name. It's bitter. Next slide. So the thing we have to see about this is, and before you get too critical of her or too down on her, there's some great things we can learn about Naomi's complaint. Uh, the first one is that she is unshaken and sure about three things. She knows that God exists. Who, as she, as she looks at her bitterness, as she looks at her anger, one of the things that you note about her is she's not complaining about her husband. He should have never taken us to Moab. He should have known that we, he would die there and the boys would die there. No. She knows who's messed with her life. It's God. And she's not holding back on that, right? She believes in God. And she believes in this God that he is sovereign, that he's big enough, that he has controlled and messed with and done things in her life. And so she understands that the, the, the cause of her bitterness is not these other people or even these, the circumstances behind her grief and behind her suffering, behind all of that, is the face of a sovereign God. A God who exists. A God who's there. A God who she can say, you have made me bitter. You testified against me. You brought calamity to me. Right? She recognizes that God has afflicted her. Now, we read that and we say, oh, man, be careful, Naomi. Right? The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? We hear that and we think, oh, don't say that. Oh, be careful, Naomi. You're, 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 uh, you're, uh, trust me. There's a lot we can learn from her. Because one of the things that I think we have to see about this is, is that complaint actually is a powerful thing. 
And complainers are powerful people. They have an impact. In fact, most things in our country, most things in our world would never change unless somebody complained. Somebody ought to complain about that, right? Don't we say that? Somebody should complain. Um, when my mom was sick and dying in the midst of all of that, you know, life goes on and uh, I ran out of checks in our, in our checkbook. I'm, I'm an old guy. I write checks. Sorry. I like the paper. I don't like a paper trail. So I ordered new checks. And, uh, and you know, when you order checks, those of you who have never done this before because you don't, don't believe in checks or, you know, you're totally electronic, one of the things that happens when you order checks, at least the way I do it is, the check company already knows my bank account number and knows which, what the, the routing number and the account number, and they just print it because they take the money to pay for the checks out of that, right? That's the way it works. So I ordered these checks. I thought, and they came, and I thought, they look a little different, but I'm, I'm, I'm caring for my mom. She's dying. I've got all these other things to do. I don't have time to do that. I've got to write these bills and get on about my business. So I wrote these bills. And I'm thinking, it has been a long time since I wrote these bills, and none of these checks are clearing the bank. I must have forgotten to put stamps on the envelopes. That could be. And then I get an email from the tuition management company for my son's tuition. And it says, your check has been returned. And I'm like, what happened? Because no such account exists. And so I opened my checkbook up and I'm like, what is going on? Well, there's an extra zero in the account. So I'm like, I'll take care of this because my contract says there's no charge for return check. So I called the guy up. Hey, I can pay it right now. Let me give you the account number. Just get the money. It's five days before it's due when I make the call. Five days. And he's like, well, that's fine, but we're going to charge you $30 for a return check. At this point, I'm really grateful because when I called in, I got the recorded message that said, this interaction may be monitored for quality assurance. (laughs) So I take that as I have the someone's listening, someone's paying attention, and I am going to make sure they understand what's going on with me here. So you're going to charge me the 30 bucks. Yes, sir, we are. But the contract says you won't charge me for a return check. He said, that's if you have insufficient funds. And I said, oh, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. I've got the money. But you're going to charge me anyway. So at that point, the Holy Spirit prompts me to say, you are a Christian, aren't you? Right? But I got the $30 removed. So not only is complaint tolerated by God, but it can even be the proper stance of a person who takes God seriously. Anyone who ascribes full sovereignty to a just and merciful God, and we have an awesomely just and merciful God, may expect to encounter the problem of evil and suffering 
And to wrestle with that problem is no sin, even when it leads to an attempt to put God on trial. To put God on trial. God wants you to put him on trial. Because he can say to you, I am just, I am merciful, I am sovereign, and I have experienced your affliction. I died for you. Put me on trial and see who the guilty one is and see who the one is who, 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 just, just put me on trial. Job 23 says, um, today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. In other words, come on, God, let's have it out. Speak to me. Right? Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Uh Uh-oh, we're getting off track. An upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Yes, there is an upright man who will get you acquitted, but it's not you. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. Isn't it funny how the person who is complaining can't see the provision for God? This is Naomi. Who's standing beside her? Ruth. I can't see God. I can't see he's forgotten about me. Where is he? He's not helping me. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot is held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I've not departed from the commandment of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me and many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I'm terrified at his presence when I consider I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet, I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. Listen, listen. There is one of the greatest expressions of faith in the midst of suffering is to cry out to God and to say, why are you doing this? Where are you? What are... what?" What is wrong? Why are you not responding? What, wh- where are you in the darkness? There is absolutely nothing wrong about that. And, and to complain like that and to complain in faith is a marvelous gift. But here's the problem. When you complain, even in bitterness but you have no hope. That's when you cross the line. Complain, cry out. But the fact is, the fact is, our God raises the dead. And so in whatever way we may think about this, in whatever way we may unpack this, the, 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 the place we dare not go in our complaint and in our darkness and in our grief and in our struggle... And we can go to a dark place. We can go to a, to a hard place. We dare not go there without hope. 
You see, the, the fact is, uh, while we, we're not re- returning home at the, at the barley harvest and, and we don't have a daughter-in-law who's foreign to go along with us as the provision of God, we have the cross of Jesus Christ. We have the empty tomb and we have the Holy Spirit. So we have those things that God has poured out for us as certain promises to us of the reality of his grace and his work for us and in us and through us. And so wherever else we may be, whatever complaint we may have, whatever darkness we may be walking through, the truth of the matter is we can complain, we can cry out, we can ask our questions, but we cannot do that in a place without hope. Don't allow your struggle and your darkness, your fears, your anxieties, and the deep things that you struggle with to put you in a place where you think there is no hope. Because there's not room for that uh, in our lives and in our complaints. Um, It's good to offer our complaints to God. It's good to cry out to Him. And the fact of the matter is, there's... There's something profound about that, something, something warm and intimate about those with whom we go and we say, I'm so disappointed in the way this has worked out. I'm so disappointed. I don't feel your love. I'm not, I'm not experiencing that. And so to go to him and allow him to do his work for us and in us and through us. And then lastly, where or what or who is your home? So one of the things that you have to see about this text is when we read this, we think only Naomi is returning home. But the fact is, Ruth is returning home. And you may think, how can you return to a place you've never been? That's your home. How can you go and call a place home where you've never been? That's where you're doing that right now. You're on the road to home. You're on the road to a place where you've never been. And that is your home. That's your home. And one of the reasons why we are so overwhelmed with anxiety and so broken in our lives and and struggle so much is we spend so much time and energy demanding that this place, this time, this relationship, that's my home. Friends, we're on a road, and we're on a road to our true home. And where we've been and where we are is not our home. But secondly, secondly, you need the church. That's what this text says. You need somebody in your darkness and in your grief to be a silent witness, but a present witness who walks with you to that home as a witness to you of the mercy and the love of God. You see, what's happening here, what's going on in this text is we see the primacy of this relationship the primacy of a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law, to two women who are only bound by a marriage that lasted just a short time, by no grandchildren, 
They're not even bound by culture or language or religion. And yet it is the provision of God for Naomi to shout to her in her pain and her darkness that this God is for her. That is why we need people in the flesh to know us, to be with us, and to walk with us even when we don't want it. Naomi doesn't want Ruth with her. Poor Ruth. She's just coming along. She's recognized where her true home, her true God is, and yet here she is, and the one that she has connected herself to, the one she has bound herself to by a vow, doesn't even see her. What a wonderful picture of the church. Those two women on the road to Bethlehem, that's a church. Bearing witness to the fellowship of suffering and the faithfulness of a God who raises the dead and loves, loves, loves the grief-stricken. Even when they can't see it. Listen. Sometimes we think of faith as simply a matter of, I got the right facts. Naomi has the right facts. She knows there's a God. She knows there's a God in Israel. And she knows that God is sovereign and that God is just. But she can't see him. Her grief is so dark, she can't see him. But he sees her. He sees her. There are plenty of people in this church with a lot of facts that lead hopeless lives because they can't see it. Unbelief often is not about the facts, but the inability to see the God behind the facts. Let's pray. Lord, we need a sense of this today. I pray that you would bless us, that you would meet us, Jesus, show us your cross. Help us to see how you bore affliction on our behalf. And Lord, for those of us who are in such a deep, dark place that we uh, have forgotten you or believe that you have forgotten us, for those of us who think that there is no hope, that you've left us to um, be on our own, I pray that you would open our eyes to see uh, the fellowship that you have provided for us with one another, the fellowship that we have in suffering with Jesus Christ, and the love that you have for us by giving us to each other. Lord, bless us, help us, be gracious to us. Lord, I pray today uh, that you would make us a hopefully complaining congregation where we would pour out our hearts and our brokenness to you in the sure and certain hope that our God raises the dead, that he loves his people, and that he draws near. Lord, I pray today for those who uh, are in danger of embracing their darkness and loving their hardness and their blindness, that you would break their hearts, break open their eyes, be close to them by your mercy. Be kind 
be gentle and raise up among us Ruth's to bear witness to your truth and your mercy. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.